0: This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Lucky you. Hello and welcome to this little episode of Big Mood, Little Mood. I'm your host, Danny M. Lavery, and this show is for you, our Plus subscribers. Our guest this week is Dr. Paula Stone-Williams, an internationally known speaker on gender equity, LGBTQ advocacy, and religious tolerance. She's also a pastor and pastoral counselor in Boulder County, Colorado. And now here we are reading a letter from a listener. Our next question is a lot shorter, but still, I think, full of lots of uh, rich and exciting detail. I'll I'll read this one. The subject is cue a mom. Thanks, letter writer. (laughs) That's going to be in my head all day. Last fall, for pretty standard Trump slash past abuse reasons, I decided I needed much more distance from my mom. No visits, no calls, no letters, no online contact, etc. It's helped my brain a lot. The problem is mom's home is kind of a hub for family activity. My brother and sister are aware of the situation and seem amenable to helping me keep in touch with their families without having to see mom. But I worry a lot about both holding this very helpful boundary and staying polite slash neutral in conversations with the rest of the family. I admire your own approach to your estrangement, so I would love to hear your thoughts. That's very sweet, letter writer. No one's ever told me they admired my estrangement before, so I'm just going to bask in the strange pleasure of a brand new compliment. Um, I also feel, I, I don't know whether it's like, I, I feel a little sad at the sort of just like, you know, standard Trump slash past abuse, you know, like how when your parents abuse you and then they vote for Trump, like everyone, um, I'm just, I'm sorry that that has been standard for, for you or the people in your life, letter writer. And I, yeah, I, I, I think that's just where I wanted to begin was just, I'm sorry. And thank you.
1: Family relationships are always incredibly complicated and I think establishing boundaries, is something that has to be done over and over throughout one's life because the boundaries that are appropriate at one age are certainly not appropriate at another age and time. Yeah. And in my own case, I I had a very difficult relationship with my, my own mother and a much better relationship with my father. But I, uh, toward the end of their lives, stayed in control of how often... I would see them or visit with them. They did not come to my home. I went to their home and I limited it to about three hours because I realized that was critical for me in terms of taking care of myself. Uh, I'm not going to, I think the best way to honor a parent, and there's so much misunderstanding about this when people look at, at the Ten Commandments. Honoring a parent doesn't mean obeying the parent. Honoring the parent means living an honorable life. And if in fact you're living an honorable life, well then, you know you're going to be able to have a um, uh, the, the kind of life that that does in fact honor the parents.
0: Yeah, I, I think that the other thing that's additionally a little bit complicated is you know, in in my own case, in my own estrangement, I am estranged from everyone in my family of origin. There's no relationship. There's no contact. Mm-hmm. Which in some ways, not not to say that that makes it easier, but it's it's straightforward. You know. I don't talk to any of them and they don't talk to me. So I'm not trying to balance competing interests. Um, I'm not trying to, uh, you know, stay neutral with one party and in opposition to another. And so the challenge here that the letter writer is facing is actually something that I haven't quite had to deal with, which is how do I remain polite slash neutral with siblings who support me, but also choose to stay in touch with a parent I've decided not to be in touch with what can I reasonably ask of them? What can they reasonably ask of me? I think those are interesting questions. I think, letter writer, I would advise you to prioritize You know, in that split of polite and neutral. I think go with polite over neutral if you ever need to uh, make a distinction between the two. You don't have to pretend to be neutral on the subject of your mother for example you're not in contact with her that's a known thing you don't have to pretend otherwise or or act as if she's someone you enjoy hearing about but politeness i think is achievable i think is reasonable you know um, not pushing your your brother or sister to make a similar decision you know you you may can continue to do that you may later decide that you 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 actually do want to ask for that and let the chips fall where they may. but you you can do all of that politely, I think. but pretending to be neutral, I think um I, I don't know that that's necessary here.
1: I would agree with that. I think that the possibility of forging a, a close bond with anyone in the family sounds to me like it's not not real likely uh, in this setting, mm-hmm. certainly not in the in the near term. And so I think establishing the boundaries that keep your own soul intact is critically important at this point. And I don't think you can love or care for others very well if you are, in fact, not caring for yourself first and foremost. You know, There's even a a teaching, it was the very last answer Jesus ever gave, the last public question he was ever asked, and it was like, which of the teachings of religion are the most important? He said, love God, love neighbor, love self. But I find it interesting that, you know, people repeat the love God and love neighbor part. They don't talk about the love self part because if you're not caring for yourself, you're not going to be able to love God as you understand God or your neighbor. You know, it's got to start with a solid, strong sense of self. And to do that, you've got to create pretty careful boundaries.
0: Yeah, and while we don't know if this particular letter writer is themselves uh, religious, um, you know, certainly I think it is often relevant when answering letters uh, in a context like this one to think about, you know, mainstream Christian culture and how that influences various received ideas that we might have about uh, our families and our family relationships. You know, I, I think the things to bear in mind, letter writer, since you say you worry a lot about holding this helpful boundary, is, you know, hope for the best, plan for the worst. I think it is fair to expect that if you want to hold this boundary over a significant period of time, there will come at least one point, possibly several points, where either your brother or your sister flag in their warm supportiveness of your decision to hold that boundary. Um, I, I don't say that in the sense of like, expect that they will be weak and fail you so much as that is your interest and not theirs. And there may come a time when it comes into conflict with their own desires. And at that point, it's likely that they will prioritize their desires over yours. And that may come up in the event of a family illness or if your mother decides to try to lean on them to try to force contact uh, again between the two of you. So so be ready for that. You know, hopefully you can treat them with forbearance in those instances, but be ready for the day that they might say, you know, mom was saying how much she missed you. And maybe next time we could all meet up around the house and and be ready for them not to maintain this boundary on your behalf. Um, you know, support's great. But it's going to have to be you who's like out surveying the fences, looking for holes, mending those holes, um, robustly patrolling that border. That one, they're not going to do for you uh, as well as you'll be able to do it for yourself. And then, you know, beyond that, you, you can remain polite with your relatives if they start bringing it up a lot. I think the best thing you can do at that point is say this is not a decision that's up for debate. Let's talk again later when you're able to discuss something else. I, I kind of think that's my best answer, even though it feels a little feeble. But just expect that this is your boundary to maintain and figure out what you will need in order to maintain it. And then let your other relatives worry about their own interests. I, I, that feels a little bit like go be a cowboy. So I'm hopeful that maybe you'll be able to add something to that.
1: I think, too, that it's important to recognize that uh, life is pretty long and family bonds are family bonds. And so what's true today may not be true 10 years from now. When I first came out, my son just disappeared. And he was gone for a good long while. He was gone for six, nine months uh, before we kind of got back together again. And then not long after that, both of his sisters took their time away. And We were all together this past week. And we're talking about how naive we were, because I think we all thought it would take about five years for us to find our new normal as a family and we're coming up on nine, and just this past week, we've realized, okay, we're there. We have the new normal that's every bit as strong as what it was before, but it took twice as long as we expected it to. And I think when you're looking at family stuff, it's always best to look at the long picture.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think having long and short-term goals both in mind is, is really useful. I also just want to acknowledge, you know, the letter writer doesn't go into a lot of detail, but the fairly standard Trump slash past abuse reasons felt a little maybe like they were trying to dismiss or downplay some of their own experience. And so, letter writer, I don't want to presume too much on the strength of that, but you know, you you say that your mother has abused you. That's significant. That's not quite on the same level as like, well, she's a little difficult. You know, she's not a great listener. There's abuse. That's serious. That's painful. And so I also want to acknowledge sometimes when we initiate one of those breaks or one of those boundaries or one of those estrangements for the first time, it's in part because we want to give ourselves a little more room to acknowledge the seriousness of how painful something has been. And sometimes that can, with time, you know, you realize this was actually quite bad. Um, I actually don't want to just take a little break. I, I needed to say that at first so it didn't seem too drastic, but I, you know, was abused throughout my childhood, or I I find this relationship unbearably painful. Um, And so I also want to give you a lot of permission letter writer to, you know, not that you have to delve into painful details of your past, but if you feel like eventually somebody remaining in a relationship with someone who's abused me is not something I can be neutral about, it's not something I want, and then you have to make a different decision around your siblings, that I want to give you permission to explore that possibility too. Not to say that you have to, not to suggest that tomorrow you need to call them up and say like, here's the timer, stop talking to mom by next Thursday or else. Simply that it is not simply your job to maintain neutrality for the rest of the family. Um, It is also your job to look after yourself and to consider what even indirect relationships to someone who has abused you uh, might be doing to your overall well-being.
1: I think a lot of us have a personality that's always moving in the direction of reconciliation and particularly children with a narcissistic parent because Mm. a narcissistic parent is not ever going to admit what he or she has done wrong. And so you've come to realize very early in life that it's just better if you acquiesce and move on. And yet your own mental health, your own psychological, spiritual health is dependent on knowing the truth and dealing with the truth. I always Mm. say to clients who... Have had difficult circumstances growing up, you really cannot move too quickly to a cheap forgiveness. There have got to be briefs for the prosecution and briefs for the defense. There has to be a trial presented. There's got to be a, a jury deliberating an outcome. There has to be an, an outcome that is presented and then a, a judge who passes sentence. And only then, after all that has happened, can you vacate that sentence. Uh, forgiveness that happens before you understand everything that's happened to you, or forgiveness offered before you understand everything that's happened to you, is, is cheap forgiveness and it's not sustainable. The kind of forgiveness that is sustainable is if you know full well exactly what was done to you and exactly the ways in which it hurt you, and you decide you can move on from that by forgiving.
0: I'm so interested to hear a little bit more about that, in part because, you know, I don't often meet other people who have had similar uh, a similar experience, like transitioning in an evangelical family or in an evangelical environment, and um, it's a heady cocktail, I think, of uh, experiences and I'm so interested you were, you were saying you know the idea of specifically a type of parent who will never admit the extent of a, a harm done. and I'm so curious about your experience, both you know coming out and then writing a book within some sort of relationship to the evangelical community, because that has so much been my experience of evangelicalism in general, is the sort of misuse of forgiveness, never willing to own up to harm's caused to queer and trans people in a way that has it, you know, necessitated for me quite a painful but necessary uh, separation. And I'm just, yeah, I'm, I'm so curious what, if anything, it has felt like to sort of advocate for a different type of forgiveness uh, within that context and within that community.
1: It is difficult, I think, to be very charitable toward the evangelical world or any form of fundamentalism as they exist in the world today, because so much damage has been done by it. Like if you take right now, who's behind all of the laws uh, that take away trans rights? Everybody assumes it's political conservatives, but they did a study of Trump voters in the 10 swing states, and 60% of those people felt that trans people should have the same civil rights everyone else has. So if it's not political conservatives driving these laws, who is it? It's 84% of Christian evangelicals who believe that gender is immutably determined at birth. That is the group that is creating incredible havoc for trans kids all over the United States. 60% of them think that we've already gone too far in the U.S. in offering people civil rights who are trans. And yet only 25% of them actually know someone who is in fact trans and they know that the person is trans. You know, there, there's such ignorance in that area. And I, I keep it at arm's length because I grew up in it. I'm fourth generation from one evangelical denomination. And therefore, those people could wound me. Mm-hmm. And I, I keep them at arm's length because I don't trust that they have my best interest at heart. I think they have a tendency to create enemies that don't exist. And right now, their enemies of choice are queer people and um, a woman's right to choose. And, you know, they've chosen two subjects that cost their 100% male patriarchal leadership absolutely nothing. You know, when the social issues you choose are abortion and uh, queerness, and you know, well, you can hold those social issues, and for ninety eight percent of you it's not going to cost you a single thing. on the other hand, if you hold let's say um systemic racism or the unequal distribution of wealth as your social issues, well, now that's actually going to cost you something as a member of the clergy, as a male member of the clergy. so no, we won't choose that. We'll choose something that actually doesn't cost me a thing. I'm rather cynical toward the social issues that um that get Traction and attention of evangelical people. Uh, I and I say at the same time, though, I am in fact a Christian. I am a pastor Mm -hmm. of a Christian church, but obviously don't have that kind of evangelical theology.
0: Yeah, Uh, that's so. You know, uh, I I hate to to lapse into my own evangelical like argo, but uh, that's so resonant, as we used to say in prayer circle. Um, (laughs) I, I think particularly, you know, certain forms of evangelical let's call it conspicuous gentleness that can often be deeply damaging, especially for queer and trans people trying to renegotiate any sort of family ties and family obligations that I'm often very suspicious of. Specifically, I think the language of being on a journey, which one will often hear deployed from people who, specifically with trans members of their family, they don't want to come out and say, I hate trans people, I hate you, I'm planning on being incredibly transphobic until you give up. Because they know that that's not the polite thing to say. And so they will say something closer to, well, I'm on a journey. This is very difficult. I need you to know I'm on a journey. And this journey has no real destination. This journey is simply one unending slog through the desert where I will not learn your name. I will not learn your pronouns. I will not listen to you about your experience. I will constantly look for ways to demean and dismiss that experience. And if you ever mention it to me, I will say, I'm on a journey. Why are you bean counting? Why is your spirit so brought low by meanness and pettiness uh, when I am on a quest for, for love and meaning? And it's a very neat trick, and it's absolutely devastating, and it can waste years, I think, of, of people's time and energy uh, trying to work with.
1: Well, it's ultimately always a power play. Um, Mm -hmm. It is, uh, as soon as someone uses that kind of language, or you don't hear it quite as much anymore, the incredibly pejorative, uh, well, I I love you, but I I hate your sin. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, no, actually, that's not okay. I call that stuff out pretty fast, because it it is coming from a position of superiority. It's Mm -hmm. coming uh, from a position of absolute knowledge. That is, in fact, not absolute and not even based on fact. And so, yeah, I, I feel like it's, uh, it's often just a, a complete uh, whitewashing of um, not being willing to admit the truth, which is, yeah, no, I actually reject you and always will. I'm I'm actually find it a little bit easier to deal with that person than the person who says, Well, you know, I'm just not quite not quite there yet. Cause you know, to them, to those people, my response is, yeah, well kids are dying while you just kind of wait around to figure out what you think. And that to me is unfortunate.
0: Thanks for joining us on Big Mood, Little Mood with me, Danny Lavery. Our producer is Phil Circus, who also composed our theme music. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com mood to sign up to subscribe or hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using right now. Also, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you get a minute. We'd love to know what you think. If you want more Big Mood, Little Mood, you should join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Members get an extra episode of Big Mood, Little Mood every Friday, and you'll get to hear more advice and conversations and interview questions with our guests. And as a Slate Plus member, you'll also be supporting the show. Go to slate.com forward slash mood plus to sign up. It's just $1 for your first month. If you need some little advice or big advice and you'd like me to read your letter on the show, head to slate.com slash mood to find our Big Mood Little Mood listener question form or find a link in the description of the platform you're using right now. Thanks for listening.